So let's open our Bibles. Bet you never thought you'd be doing a series on wine, but here we are. And uh, we are picking up in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, if you don't know where Ecclesiastes lies in the Bible, open the Bible up to about the midway portion. You'll find the Psalms, and then you go Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and then you find Ecclesiastes. Now, this idea of wine and the aging process really does seem to work well together. Uh, the process of creating wine, which I really don't know that much about, so I'm just, you know, I'm just spitting facts here. I've never done this before. But it comes from fermenting fruit. The scientific term for it is zymology. Uh, grapes transform into wine. And the analogy works because as you age, God is, get this, fermenting you. He is. And we know that this process takes time. It takes time. A bunch of you laughed at me a couple of weeks ago. Some of you even scoffed a little bit when I said that I started thinking about this because I'm turning 40 in March. And I got to tell you, um, this came about as I was reflecting and looking ahead in life. Psalms 9:10 says, teach me to number my days. So if you think of your life like a, a fine wine or like a wine or through this fermentation process, we've observed in life that some people become a fine wine and other people become vinegar. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't want to become vinegar. So how do I become a fine wine? Well, scripture says that you can go through the aging process mindlessly. You can just wake up one day and be old, and it happened. Or you can apply wisdom to life. Hmm. So this is a series for anyone of any age. You can be 20 and really benefit from this. <laughs> if you're 80, I'm sorry, it's a little too late now. <laughs> Not true. Not true at all. Proverbs 4, 7 says this, above everything, right? The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. It doesn't matter how old you are. One day lived in wisdom is better than 20 years lived in foolishness. So no matter when you learn something, to start applying it and to start living it is biblically sound. So we're going to start with vinegar because we've got to understand what causes people to sour. Now, as I was uh, researching this series, uh, there were a couple of books that I used to help in terms of support materials. And one of them was by author Arthur C. Brooks. He wrote a book, From Strength to Strength. And he tells about his journey to writing the book. It began with an airplane ride, a red eye, in fact, from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. You know, if you've ever flown a flight like this, it's late at night and people are either sleeping or they're watching their videos. But in the seat directly behind him, he hears this murmuring. And in a, a loud voice from a wife, perhaps in her 80s, she says to her husband, it's not true that no one needs you anymore. What piques his curiosity? 
more murmuring, more, uh, I don't like this. And then she says loudly again, oh, stop saying that it would be better off if you were dead. Now, you've been there before. You don't want to eavesdrop. You hear something like that, and you're like, oh my goodness, like, what are they talking about back there? He starts to build a profile for who this guy is. Oh, I bet you this guy is someone who had really significant dreams, and it just didn't work out for him. They never materialized. Perhaps he was insignificant. Maybe no one really ever knew him, and he just kind of felt like backgrounded in life. Or maybe... He hit that age when he was no longer being viewed as youthful, useful at work, and so they just kind of moved him on, and it made him feel worthless. The plane lands. To his shock, as the lights come on, he knows who this guy is. It's not a nameless nobody. It's a hero, an American hero who had demonstrated courage and great leadership skills and had established notoriety for decades in his life. In fact, as they're getting up and they're departing the plane, many people in the aisles of the plane recognize this individual. The pilot is waiting to greet everyone on their way out, and he says, I have always respected you, even from when the time I was a little boy. Now, Brooks sees this change, an instant change. Here's a guy that was just wishing he was dead, and now he's smiling from ear to ear. So here's this cognitive dissonance playing out right in front of his eyes. He starts thinking about his life. When he was 40 years old, he wrote a series of goals. By the time he was 48, he had hit every single one of those goals. And yet, he wasn't feeling any better about his life. Now, I want to suggest this morning that you don't need to get on an airplane and hear the existential cry of a man behind you saying, I'd be better off dead to come to the realization that Brooks came to. In fact, you can go into your Bible in a book that was written thousands of years ago and hear this existential cry from the voice of Solomon. Everything is meaningless. I want to suggest that the book of Ecclesiastes is a book for the back half of life. And Solomon, as he begins writing this book, starts off with describing what makes you go sour. So let me read the first 11 verses in chapter 1. The text says this, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. 
All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Thank you, Solomon. I'm feeling a lot better now about my life. <laughs> I want you to memorize the four most dangerous words that we tend to believe. The four most dangerous words are, this time it's different. This time it's different. And why are these dangerous words? Well, think about the natural progression of your life. Uh, in order to set up your life, you have to go through certain pursuits. You, of course, build relationships. You get educated. You um, gain experiences. Some of those experiences might involve travel. You build your career. You establish a stable financial future for yourself. All natural, understandable. We should all do these types of things. But here's the problem. At some point along the way, as you go through the aging process, these things become an end in themselves. And as you listen to people, some people a little further down the road in life, and they start talking back to you about pursuing these things. They say things like, I got the money, and I'm still not happy. Or, I destroyed my marriage because I became all consumed with my career. Or someone might say, I gave my company decades of my life. You know what? One year after I retired, no one remembered my name. See, we hear these things, but then we say to ourselves, well, this time it's different. So we go into these pursuits. We chase after the gold at the end of the magic rainbow. Well, Solomon in this first chapter says that is hebel. That's a Hebrew word, and that's the word that you see where he repeats it a lot, vanity or meaninglessness. The idea here is that you are setting yourself up for a pursuit that is like chasing after the wind. And Solomon is saying, listen, been there, done that, it was all a big box of nothing. In fact, he opens up multiple boxes of nothing for us to show us this. I want us to see these boxes of nothing. The first box of nothing is the myth of education. And everyone's kind of like, whoa, hold on a second here. Education's a good thing. Listen, everything that we're about to talk about is not inherently evil. We would all agree, education is good, right? Really good. I want my kids to be well-educated. I like the, uh, the, you know, the, the things that education afforded me. But when it becomes, I wholly give myself to this thing, that's where the problem and danger emerges. So Solomon talks about this in chapter 1, verse 16. He said, I said in my heart... 
I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Then look at verse 17. I perceived that this is but striving after the wind. It turns out that you can get frustrated as you gain more and more knowledge. Some of the frustration is sorrow. Kind of wish I didn't know that. It's better off before I knew it. Some of the frustration is the reality that the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. But there's also a second half of life issue. I don't know if he's referring to this as he is talking about education, but he may be. I like to refer to it as the law of diminishing returns. Uh, Brooks describes it for us in this paragraph. If we can get that next slide. There we go. In, in middle age, the prefrontal cortex degrades in effectiveness. And this has several implications. The first is that rapid analysis and creative innovation will suffer. The second is that some specific once easy skills become devilishly hard like multitasking. Do you know when this starts really setting in? One's late 30s. In fact, that's kind of when you've kind of hit your peak for your prefrontal cortex. We know this because Nobel Prize winners more often than not are around their mid to late 30s when they did the work that led to their Nobel Prize. Now, there's outliers, of course, but what we find as we do more research into this area is that there is a precipitous decline after this age. In fact, it's said that the probability of producing a major breakthrough at age 70 is approximately equivalent to what it was at age 20, about zero. The law of diminishing returns, we see it in smaller ways. Think about the last time you struggled recalling a name. Now, it's said that by the time you are 50, your brain is as crowded with information as the New York Public Library. Now think about your recall in this way. Your recall is like a personal librarian assistant who has become creaky, slow, and easily distracted. And you're walking through the grocery store and you come across this person that you've known for a long time. And so you send the assistant off and you think to yourself, oh boy, I gotta get this name. Well, the assistant kind of gets up slowly they start making their way to the section. They grab a cup of coffee on the way. They have a conversation with someone in the periodicals. They arrive and they forget why they were heading in that direction in the first place. And by the time the assistant comes back and says, oh yeah, that's Mike. Mike's long gone. Now, don't be too discouraged. There is a type of intelligence that grows as you age. But here's the problem in our culture. Our culture prizes this 
first kind of intelligence, this creative, innovative kind of intelligence. So if you're trying to play the game of winning at life and you're playing a game where you're destined to lose, guess what you're going to feel? Frustration. Let's look at another box of nothing. The second box is the myth of the aesthetic life. Soren Kierkegaard describes this aesthetic life. Solomon talks about it in chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And what does he do? He goes full bore into this. I mean, he laughs a lot, drinks to excess. His life motto is, if it feels good, do it. He lives it out. He reaches his hand deep into the aesthetic life box, and he grasps, and he finds there's nothing. You see, the aesthetic life says that life is a series of experiences to be consumed or to be enjoyed. Uh, you got to think of life like a giant grocery store and the aesthetic person's walking through the aisles of the store and they're just kind of like, I'd like a little of that experience. And this person would be a good friend for right now for this phase of my life. And, and you turn into a chooser in life. Uh, David Brooks, another author, describes it as making your life into a piece of artwork. In other words, you judge the quality of your life based on its aesthetic appeal. Is it interesting or dull? Is it pleasurable or unpleasurable? Is it pretty or ugly? Guys, this is the Instagram life well before Instagram was ever created. You, you can see the aesthetic life playing out a series of experiences. Swing dancing one day, soul cycle twice per week. You go through your martial arts phase, whether it's karate or jujitsu, or you spend a couple of months getting that way out there in Krav Maga. You want to get artistic, so you start doing pottery, perhaps. Every weekend is consumed by the next art gallery or the next destination. Here's the deal. Your Instagram feed starts looking amazing. Oh my goodness. By the way, that's our Instagram feed and it does look amazing. <laughs> but there's a cost. David Brooks explains the cost like this. You have many people, but you don't know anyone really well. You have thousands of conversations. You can't really remember any of them. You're hovering over life. You're never landing on anything. Each individual day is fun, but none of it seems to be adding up to anything. In other words, you are consuming a giant nothing burger. Third myth, Solomon asks a very pointed question to the workaholic. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. 
even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Now, this term workaholism was first coined in 1960 by psychologist Wayne Oates after his own son needed to schedule an appointment with his office in order to get a face-to-face -face meeting with his father. So busy was his schedule. I heard the story of a pastor. His little six or eight-year-old son went up to his wife and said to her, I wish that I was sick enough that I would need to go to the hospital. You hear a six or eight-year-old say something like that, and you're like, what? Honey, why would you say that? He said, because then daddy would come and see me. You see, workaholism is defined as the compulsion or the uncontrollable need to work incessantly. And here's the deal. The great cost to the workaholic is social in nature. It's loneliness. Solomon describes this life of a lonely man in Ecclesiastes 4. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet... There is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Now, the lonely man's life is a sad story, and it's a sad story that is all too common today. You know, one of the other books that I read while I was gathering my support materials was a book by David Brooks called The Second Mountain. And at the very beginning of the book, he confesses why he was led to write the book. And I want to read just a little excerpt of that to you. He writes this, I achieved far more professional success than I had ever expected to. But that climb turned me into a certain sort of person, aloof and vulnerable and uncommunicative, at least when it came to my private life. I sidestepped the responsibilities of my relationships. My ex-wife and I have an agreement that we don't talk about our marriage and divorce in public. But when I look back generally on the errors and failures and sins of my life, they tend to be failures of omission, failures to truly show up for the people I should have been close to. They tend to be the sins of withdrawal, evasion, workaholism, conflict avoidance, failure to empathize, and a failure to express myself openly. I believe that loneliness is perhaps the key souring agent in the back half of life. You see, all of these boxes that Solomon's opening actually lead there. The aesthetic life leads there. I know a bunch of people, but I don't really know anyone. The workaholic life leads there. And guess what? One of our dominant cultural values today, living here and now in the Western world, hyper-individualism leads you there. You see, we prize 
finding myself and doing life my way. But I've got to tell you, church, there is a pandemic going on in this culture, and it is not COVID-19. And all the evidence points in this direction. Get this, 35% of people after 45 would say that they are chronically lonely. They did research in Britain. They were talking to pastors and they were asking these pastors, tell me about the most significant issue that your parishioners face. And you know what 65% of the pastors said? Loneliness. Now here's one of the hardest things to hear. When you live in a more affluent, cohesive society, the lifespan tends to get further back. It grows. In fact, as you look at our society, it makes sense that lifespans have increased. You have greater access to health care. You have better hygiene, better shelter over people's heads. You have all of these things that help people to live longer. And yet, if you look at the statistics, the last time that the American age span declined was between 1915 and 1918. Here's why. World War I and a great flu pandemic where 657,000 Americans lost their life. Okay, that makes sense. It's very tragic. It's sad. But this one doesn't. In 2018, the CDC reported that the same thing took place again in American culture. You know the cause of the decline in age? Deaths of despair? Suicide, drug overdose, liver failure, people who are quietly dying in themselves because they don't have people around them. And guess what? It happens to Christians too. It happens inside the local church. And we have the Bible that tells us we need to be together. We need to be a family. We need to be in community. And yet, Christians are getting lonelier and lonelier. You see the problem? One more myth. We can handle it. The myth of the nest egg. Very prudent to look ahead in life and store wealth. Very prudent to say to yourself, you know, I'm going to be a saver. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. There could be an emergency, and I need to have access to take care of myself during that time. But there is an inherent danger in stored wealth. Listen again to Solomon. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches are kept by their owner but to his hurt. So here you have this person, they're amassing wealth, they've got these stored resources, and then it turns out it's not enough for him. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. He wanted to double, triple, quadruple his money. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Now, Aesop tells a fable 
um, that, that lends itself well to this. It's an old fable where there's a miser who melts all of his gold into a giant ball of gold. Wouldn't that be nice to have a giant ball of gold to carry around with you? He takes the ball of gold, he digs a hole, he buries it into the ground. And, and much to the delight of a thief somewhere along the way, the thief discovers that a miser has done this. So he steals the ball of gold. Now the guy loses himself starts weeping uncontrollably. A neighbor walking along the road stops and goes over and he questions him. And he says, were you planning to spend the gold on anything? And the miser says, no. So then the neighbor offers this advice. Well, then you might as well just look at the hole in the ground because it's doing you the same good as the ball of gold was doing you before. I like what Solomon says in the next verse, verse 16. This too is a very serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. We've got a ball of gold. We're staring at it. We start placing our significance in the ball of gold. When we go through a bull market, we feel great. It's growing. It's doing so well. And then you go through 2022 where there's great market pullback, perhaps 20%, perhaps 30%. And all of a sudden, you just don't feel so good about yourself. Solomon says, dig a hole and stare at it. What good is it? But Rob, this time it's different. Okay. So you're not going to listen to me, and you're not going to listen to Arthur Brooks and David Brooks, and you're not going to listen to Solomon. Well, maybe you will be convinced by Stein's law, which is an absolute, which says that if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. You got that? You see, Solomon, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not make bets on things that he knows he's going to lose or even could lose at. He makes bets that are done deals, surefire. So he's willing to make a bet with you. Here's one of his bets. He bets that you're never at the age of 55 going to look like you did when you were 20. He also bets that you're not going to find ultimate security and comfort and happiness in your nest egg. He also bets that your compulsion to work will result in detached relationships with all the people around you. He's also betting that your mind is going to decay over time. So here is my advice to you this morning. You ready for this? Deal with it. Stop chasing after fool's gold. This will only turn your life into vinegar. You see, all of this that we're seeing in the book of Ecclesiastes is we're coming to the realization that I want my life to be a fine wine. I don't want it to be vinegar. Begins with this realization. It's not about me. Do you notice that everything Solomon was writing about was about him? 
the three-foot space that I occupy, my wealth, my mind, my work, my pleasure. It's not about you. Now, what we come to realize is that it's okay to have an identity. It's okay to say, I matter. It's okay to even perhaps discover like how I'm wired and why I'm wired that way. But I've got to come to the realization that there is a great paradox at play in my life. And the paradox is this. If you want to find yourself, you must first lose yourself. Isn't that what Jesus said to his disciples? If anyone wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? If anything is anything worth more than your soul? Now, I'll bet when you hear a verse like that, you're thinking of the loss of your soul at death. I have to say, that's certainly there in Jesus' meaning. But could it be that he's talking about the loss of your soul much earlier? You know, God is pretty smart. And he knows what he's doing. And he wired you to crave more. And that more is joy. Here's the thing about joy. It's elusive. It's wrapped up in the great paradox. And here's what I mean. Uh, if you want to get more out of life, you actually have to learn to give back more to life. The Bible talks about this all over the place. Love your neighbor. Be generous with your resources. Don't just store up your wealth, but enrich the lives of others through your wealth. You're not going to solve the existential questions of life. Why do I, you know, why am I here? What's the meaning of life? You're not going to solve those questions by sitting over life and analyzing life. At some point, you have to come to the realization that your life has been given to you, and you are not analyzing it. It is analyzing you. Well, what do you mean there, Rob? Well, here's what I mean. God has placed you right here, right now. Why? And as you look out at your life and you see the people that are in your life, stop engaging in FOMO and start thinking, why are the various people that are right here right now in my life and how do I love these people really well? Or you think about your career and your job. Perhaps you're not going to be able to be the creative innovator forever. But along the way, here's what you gain. Wisdom. Experience. How are you going to use those things for God's purposes and for his glory? You see, this is what we're going to talk about next week. How do I develop my savor? Let's pray until then. Lord, 
I am so grateful for the scriptures and for wisdom. We know, Lord, that this idea of wisdom is that it is skillful living. In other words, we don't have to operate in life mindlessly. But you have left all these cues in life and in your word to teach us how to live the kind of life that you've called us to live. It's been said that the first half of life is really just the preparation for the second half of life. So now if you're in the second half of life, you're, you're in the game and it's time to go. And so I pray for the second half of life for each of us. Help us to live it for your glory, no matter where we are. Live it for you. We thank you that Psalm 139 reminds us, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Help me to live in that, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.